This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980CFPL. We want to talk about paid sick leave and sick days and the ongoing conversations that have happened in the legislature and the ongoing number of pieces of legislation that have been introduced Latest one came yesterday from the Ontario Liberals, and it was voted down. So where do we sit on this? Well, the best person to ask is the person who joins us right now, the Minister of Labor, Training, and Skills Development in Ontario, representing Lambton, Kent, Middlesex, Mr. Monty McNaughton. Minister McNaughton, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Anytime, and thanks for having me on. Minister McNaughton, I'm going to go to something that is at globalnews.ca that was written by Nick Westall, and it directly quotes the Premier of Ontario talking about a program that will deal with sick days. Quote, it's going to be one of the best programs in conjunction with the federal government in North America. I also want to remind the people of Ontario, there's no other province in this entire country that has the program that we're going to be laying out nowhere close, end quote. I guess my first question is, does the program exist right now? Was the Premier describing something that existed or something that was being negotiated? Well, look, we uh, announced today that uh, we want the federal government to double uh, the payments to workers uh, across uh, the province. Uh, currently, uh, under the agreement uh, that Justin Trudeau set up a number of months ago, uh, they're paying workers in Ontario below minimum wage, which is $500 uh, per week. And we uh, have said we want that doubled, and Ontario will pick up 100% of the cost of doubling uh, that program. And the reason why uh, this makes sense is because uh, the federal program is set up. They have the infrastructure in place to uh, get checks into people's pockets. And we think uh, workers in Ontario should have four weeks of uh, paid sick days, and uh, they should be getting uh, $1,000 per week. Not long ago, Minister McNaughton, the Prime Minister, was asked about this and responded to it. And while he didn't say exactly no, that the federal government would not be helping, he didn't say yes either. What do you make of his comments? Well, I was actually quite uh, optimistic uh, with uh, the Prime Minister's uh, comments today. He uh, certainly uh, made it clear uh, in my perspective that he wants to uh, work with us. Uh, We're we're at the table ready uh, to get this done. But again, um, it's important that we uh, top up and double this uh, federal program to get us through uh, COVID-19. The other thing is, um, you know, you referenced uh, a Liberal bill that was brought forward at Queen's Park uh, yesterday. Uh, It was uh, going to uh, put all of the sick day payments on the backs of our small businesses. And uh, we disagree with that because small businesses need to have a fighting chance to reopen as we come out of COVID-19. And we need to ensure that workers have jobs to go back to. That's why uh, we need to work together with the federal government to increase uh, those payments. And that means that workers won't have to choose between their job and their health. But when we look at at maybe mandating sick days or employers to look after some sick days, couldn't there be a happy medium there that that we could see employers helping out in this? We could, I mean, we could even look at at insurance. Could we could we look at insurance something? 
No, there's, there's a program already in place, and the federal government is delivering $500 a week uh, for four weeks uh, to workers uh, in Ontario, but it is one of the, the biggest gaps uh, in this program is the fact that they're paying Ontario workers $12.50 an hour. So we came forward with a proposal to double this, uh, to bring it up to $1,000 per week. We've even gone further saying let's make it retroactive uh, for 60 days where workers could go back and apply uh, if they had time off uh, because they were sick over the last uh, 60 days. So again, Ontario is going to pay the bill. That's not the issue. We just need that uh, infrastructure that the federal government already has uh, set up. It would cover all workers in the province, including uh, the hundreds of thousands of uh, workers that work in the gig economy, Uber drivers, for example. It would also cover um, all the self-employed people out there. So this makes sense. Let's not duplicate uh, a system. Ontario is being very generous to double this program and make it $1,000 per week for four weeks. Monty McNaughton joining us, Minister of Labour, Training and Skills Development in Ontario. But when the Premier was touting this best program ever last week in North America, that wasn't a thing. This is um, a gap that exists, uh, and, and every worker out there uh, knows that that um, you know when you're getting $12.50 from the federal government per hour, it's not going to encourage people uh, to stay home uh, if they're sick. Uh, if we bring in and if the federal government agrees to what we're proposing, uh, $1,000 per week, we simply transfer them the money. They will get it out uh, to all those workers who need to stay home uh, during COVID-19. Uh, it means that workers would be getting $25 an hour uh, when they're sick. This is a, uh, a short-term uh, initiative to get us through uh, COVID-19. The federal program ends uh, September the 25th. And it's also balanced. It's not putting... Uh, all of the costs on those small businesses out there who need a fighting chance uh, to reopen. But most importantly, we need to ensure that workers have jobs to go back to. We can't force uh, small businesses to close shop. Understood. But, Minister McNaughton, you've used the word if, 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 if quite a few times. What if the federal government says no? We know that other provinces uh, have uh, the same uh, issues. Uh, In fact, Uh, The provincial NDP in British Columbia uh, called on the federal government last week to be part of the uh, solution, be a partner uh, to get this job done. But what if they say no? I'm optimistic. Uh, Trudeau uh, indicated today that they're um, willing, in in my opinion, to be at the table and to have uh, discussions to to get this done. I think there's a real opportunity, and uh, we look forward to getting to that table and getting this job done as quickly as possible for workers in Ontario. Minister McNaughton, here's something else on this. Why wasn't something done before now? Because, I mean, tick, 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 we've been in this pandemic a long time. This is not something that's been introduced in the last week, in the last two weeks. This is something that has been called on for a long, long time. Why are we in this position now? We were the very first province uh, in the country to bring in job-protected leave uh, last March for any worker uh, who needs to be in self-isolation, in quarantine. If you're uh, a mom or a dad, for example, that has to stay home and look after a son or a daughter because the schools are closed, you can't be fired for that. We were the first province to bring in uh, that job-protected leave. We went even further. Uh, no sick notes required now uh, during COVID-19. And uh, we were also the first jurisdiction in North America to bring in job-protected leave uh, so people could get their vaccination. Uh, Now, uh, this third wave uh, is upon us, and we have been working months 
uh, on the federal government to make improvements to their programs. And, and they have uh, to their uh, credit, but this is a, a major gap in the system. We need to double those payments and uh, get the federal government at the table to make this happen. It can be done with the, uh, you know, just the, the flick of a switch. If you were putting all of these things in place, which you did, why not just expand on that and do it yourself instead of being at the mercy of the federal government? Why not just say, okay, you know, this, this isn't happening quickly enough. We need this now. We need to do it. The reason why is because the federal uh, infrastructure is in place when it comes to the uh, technology to run uh, this program. They're already, uh, you know, giving out $500 per week. We just need them to change that to $1,000 and send uh, Ontario the bill. We don't want to duplicate uh, the administration of this. We need to make it simple, and that would make it better for workers in, in the province. Minister McDonald, I'll, I'll just ask it one more time. What if they don't do it? We're going to uh, work with other provinces to get the federal government at the table uh, to make this happen. And uh, I can tell you there's been discussions uh, happening uh, today. And uh, I'm optimistic that uh, the federal liberal government will make uh, the right decision. They know this is in the best interests of uh, workers. And there are other provinces in the same situation. You seem to be putting them in, in kind of the light to make the decision here, though. Uh, look, uh, it, it makes sense for workers. And I, I believe you know, because we've worked closely with them uh, during this pandemic, that they'll make the right decision and know that uh, paying people in Ontario below minimum wage is uh, a major gap. And uh, we're stepping up to increase those payments to $25 an hour. It's the right thing to do. And we need to put politics aside, do the most efficient and fastest system possible to get checks in workers' pockets. But there is no plan B. And, and how about a timeline? Is there a timeline? Look, we're going to work uh, through the night to uh, work on getting this done. And uh, again, I'm uh, confident and, and optimistic that uh, Justin Trudeau will make the right decision. Minister McNaughton, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you for answering the questions. Anytime. Thank you. That is Monty McNaughton, Minister of Labor, Training and Skills Development in Ontario. So they really want the federal government to continue the program that the government operates, the Ontario government would top it up, but if the federal government says no, there's there's no plan B, right? Is it that's what I got from that. There is no plan B. They're gonna work through the night, they want to get something done. But what if the what if the federal government says no? And there are workers right now that are struggling with the federal program. So where does that leave us? I hope I got all the questions in that you would have asked. We have long-term care to discuss, and not just Ontario. This is not pick on the Ontario government day, because I'm not trying to do that. But this is look at the issues day, it seems. This is what do we have staring at us day. That's what today is. And when we're talking about long-term care, it was an issue before the pandemic. It's been a really big issue during the pandemic. It continues to be an issue as we now head toward 14 months of the pandemic. To the point that earlier today, there was an event held, and that event was held coast-to-coast. It was called a Canada-wide protest on the failure to improve long-term care. Joining us right now from the Ontario Health Coalition is Peter Bergmanis. Peter, how are you this afternoon? Good afternoon, Mike. 
Okay, let's go to why this was put together. This was not Ontario-wide. This was not city-wide. This this is Canada-wide protest on the failure to improve long-term care. Peter, give us the background on this, please. Certainly. Uh, I uh, appreciate uh, you giving us the time. Uh, the issues are clearly uh, fact-based, um, but it's a highly emotionally charged one, too, for all of Canadians. And uh, what triggers it, again, is like we were talking about, um, you know, the inadequacy in long-term care even a year ago and all the things that we needed to do, and yet they weren't implemented in Ontario and so many other uh, provinces and territories. So today, after a year of uh, struggle, we find ourselves in a worse situation than we did even a year ago. And so the Ontario Health Coalition joined its partners in uh, the Canadian Health Coalition to uh, raise this hue and cry. And there's a lot of people who are on this uh, protest via Facebook Zoom uh, in the thousands. And it's trending as the number one issue in Canada that we need to create real meaningful changes, cannot go back to the way long-term care, where we had the highest rate of mortality in the pandemic to date we cannot go back to where it was over a year ago so we were out today in the thousands with some very excellent speakers speaking to the issues such as the grand understaffing the horrible conditions and now looking at what is going to happen next if we're now transferring patients from overwhelmed hospitals to the very same facilities, which were the ground zero of this. Right. Let's begin with staffing. And had a really interesting point raised by Rick, wondering about the staffing concerns and if if it you know could be addressed by not worrying about bringing in part-time workers for the weekend, because we've heard that that has been at least a, an issue that has been brought up. What if what if we dealt with the workforce differently? Could that be something that helped? It really would. Um, and you've heard this so many times. And I know you're going to listen to the Labour Minister today addressing part of that being uh, paid sick leave. Uh, this is a precarious workforce unless we entrust them with the most valuable work in our society of looking after our elders. And yet we're treating them like they're the bottom of the barrel. Uh, the precarious worker part-time job without any paid time for sick days is a vector in this whole thing, and it has to be addressed. And it, working conditions, above all, are the main cause. We saw in Quebec where we had 10,000 people properly trained up and paid for by their government, and yet a good 40% of those left because the conditions were so deplorable. We have to address the root cause of that. And the worst of the worst perpetrators are our for-profit homes. If we don't address them as the basis of why this pandemic has been so merciless, then we aren't serving anyone. So 
if we're if we're to look at, at that and expand on it a little bit more, even if we're getting away from sick days and we're just talking about a twenty four seven operation, and that's what Rick had kind of put forward that I thought that that makes a lot of sense that we aren't necessarily calling this what it is. This is twenty four seven care. That's exactly what you need in long term care. What about a staff that had rotating days off? Does that sort of thing exist? Could it exist? Well, it it would exist if you had enough staff to do it. We're doing a record overtime shifts now. So how do you rotate when there's no one to rotate with? It's got to hmm. be beyond that. It's it's a case of we have homes that are going to be accepting patients in our region alone that require a level of care that is beyond the training and scope of practice of some of those staff. What we really need is a lot more PSWs, a lot more trained nurses. We need in the order of 37,000. We can maybe point to 6,000 we're going to get trained at all, and there's nothing been done to make their working conditions something desirable enough to even stay there. We'll train them and they'll leave. What kind of system is this? This is not even organized. Peter Bergman is joining us. Spokesperson with Ontario Health Coalition. As they got together virtually today and had speakers and talked about some of the issues that continue to plague our long-term care system, not just in Ontario, but in other parts of this country as well. So if we are to look back a year ago, that iron ring began to be talked about in Ontario, that we're going to put an iron ring around long-term care and that there would be all kinds of people put into training. We were going to get more PSWs, personal support workers. This was going to happen. And you just said that we're not necessarily seeing what we need to or are we seeing any any change in this? Has, has anything come from what was discussed a year ago? Unfortunately, what we have, a piecemeal effort on the part of the government, it didn't even help support those people willing to go into college to learn. Uh, the Quebec government at least paid them for the training. Uh, what we've got here is a rusted-out old iron ring, all right, and it was so porous that every COVID uh, incident became even worse than the next one. We had the military coming in. Oh, look, we have the military coming in again this year. How could we not have learned from that alone? And, of course, the federal government's budget has a lot to share here. Instead of uh, making nice statements about how we're going to have national standards, they came out with the bare minimum. They're giving the private industry, juggernaut known as accreditation, the, the sole responsibility for looking after the standards. Every facility in Ontario has accreditation, and they were like, sites of mass casualties due to this COVID pandemic. Accreditation is a pathetic answer. So how does accreditation work? Well, apparently the industry itself, it's a privately run industry. So they will set standards. They will then determine if you've met those bureaucratic measures that they don't have any enforcement teeth. They don't have any consequences. It's everything that we already have as a disaster in our system right now. And they cannot be trusted at all to look after the interests of the frail and elderly. We're talking with Peter Bergmanis, spokesperson with the Ontario Health Coalition, as we continue to look at long-term care, something we've been looking at now in depth throughout the pandemic. 
So, Peter, we then have the federal government that seems to be falling short. We have the Ontario government that seems to be falling short. What do we do? What What would be a solution? Well, we have to certainly take back uh, the realm of full-scale health care, inclusive of long-term care. It should be considered just like another aspect of our Medicare system with universal, publicly funded, and proper oversight. And unfortunately, we have a regulatory body that has pretty well been lobbied to the point where governments just acquiesce to everything that the for-profits predominantly want. And uh, hence, we uh, have found ourselves in a situation where the bad players, there's not one bad player in Ontario that has been charged, fined, lost their license in long-term care. And that's precisely because they have the ear of the government. And that government is too closely tied to the long-term care for-profit industry. So that's step number one. Expose it. Make sure that these uh, perpetrators are held to account. Make it a transparent system that we all know what the standards of care should be. Absolutely remove profit from the whole equation. There has to be a real publicly legislated funding mechanism, just like the Medicare system, and there has to be accountability. Peter, you talked about all of the overtime hours being worked. Could could the long-term care homes not hire more workers? By now, we, we have to have more even coming out of schools. We've just had another school year end. Could they not just hire more people? Well, the interesting thing is, is that They've been deliberately sitting on the empty beds as they become empty. So we have thousands of empty long-term care beds when we have people waiting patiently on long waiting lists to get in. But, of course, now they become the backdrop for this is where we have to put our surplus hospital patients. And understand this. These homes have been actually getting paid as if they're completely filled with every bed for the whole duration of this pandemic. So they could have used that money to invest, but they did not. They actually chose to give their CEOs raises, give their financiers raises. No, this is the problem. If this greed-driven industry is going to take on long-term care, we have to drive them out. So we're talking about in, in terms of the money that would be coming in to pay those long-term care homes as if they were full we do know that there is government money that comes to long-term care is that the kind of money we're talking about is that what you're saying absolutely it's all publicly funded money whether it's a municipal home like in london or whether it's a for-profit which the majority of them are they all have public dollars paying for what they should be providing (sighs) who would have thought we would be sitting here a year after a lot of the declarations of what was going to be done for long-term care. And, Peter, you would still be able to point to not just an example, but many examples of things that still need to be fixed. You know, I I don't think any of us wanted to believe that. I don't think you wanted to believe that. I really did think I would be just doing hyperbole last April when I was talking to you about a very similar situation. And uh, I think... uh, I. This time around, you might probably hear the emotion and frustration in my voice, but I 
I think you'd be deserving, as all Canadians, to feel like, what the heck is wrong with this system? When they know better, they could do better, and they choose not to. If we took, and and just to to kind of tie things up here, if they took the for-profit out of this, how much does that change things? Well, it eliminates one of the worst features, and what it would do is at least bring transparency, public control, and ownership, just as we have in our hospital care settings, and it would be regulated, and we would have a say as the people of this country as to the way we want to handle things. The way it is now, we're leaving it to the for-profit providers to dictate what national standards for care are. And we can clearly see what a disaster that is. Peter, really appreciate your time on all of this. Thank you for keeping the issue front and center as you have been doing. And I thank you, Mike, and uh, the station for making sure that the public gets to hear this very vital information. Hey, we're, we're here to talk. That's what we're here to do. We'll talk soon. Keep safe. Okay. You as well, brother. That's Peter Bergmanis, spokesperson for Ontario Health Coalition. And we don't need to have the conversation about there are certain things that we can't have as for-profits. Again, we've had it already. But when we're dealing with someone who is nearing the end of their life, someone who needs the help and the services of long-term care, and we're, we're diggling around with bottom lines. Now, let's state it. There are long-term care homes in this area, in all areas, that are run really well. And they're great places to be. And hopefully, if you know somebody who's in a long-term care home, that's where they are. There are some that are dynamite. But the ones that aren't, there's no excuse for the ones that aren't. And if it's about diggling with the bottom line, it's about time that stops. You know the commercial that would come on, it's been happening for years. The campaign's been so good, so strong, that they really haven't needed to change it. It's staples. And it happens during summer holidays, summer vacation for the kids. And it used to happen maybe two weeks before school started. Now, I mean, it's like everything. The holiday decorations are going up in amongst the pumpkins and the scary black cats. Everything gets pushed back a little bit. I think now it's the third week of summer vacation. And you hear, they're going back. And then they sing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Well, They still have six weeks of summer vacation. It's not even July yet. But here we go. Let's take a look at what happens when they're going back. Does not refer to kids on summer vacation, but the workforce of Ontario, the workforce of Canada in large part, everyone who has been working remotely, working from home, working intermittently from home, what happens when... We're going back. Well, let's find out. Joining us right now is Howard Levitt. And Howard is Canada's leading employment and labor relations lawyer. Howard, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about that day. We're going back. We know that we are seeing more Ontarians vaccinated, 
We are seeing those numbers continue to grow, and they just will continue to grow. And there will come a point when either it's decided by the province or hinted at by the province or decided at by workplaces. All right, we can can have more people inside. So here we go. Let's get back into the way that the work world worked for as many companies as want to do it. What do we need to know about what employers can ask us with regard to returning to work and maybe even having been vaccinated? Where does that even sit? Let's start with this. They can ask you to come back to work. As long as the workplace is objectively safe, or at least reasonably and practicably safe, not perfect, not prophylactic, but reasonably safe, they can order you back to work and you can say, I can work more productively at home. I'm putting in more hours than I was before. I'm more productive. The employer can say, I don't care. Even if you can prove that, you have a, I have a right to require you to come back to the workforce, and that is what I'm going to do. Or they can let some come back and not others, or they can say, you want everybody vaccinated, if those who are going to be working close quarters with others, or they can ask for proof of vaccinations and make a cause for discharge if you lie. They can do a lot of things. Wait a minute. Let's pick up on that for a second. There is cause for discharge if you're not telling your employer the truth about what's going on? Sure, because employers are relying on that to put people in close proximity with customers and with close proximity with their coworkers. And if you lie about it, it's a little bit like breaking social codes in terms of safety provisions in the workplace. For example, if you come to work after you've been in contact with someone with COVID, contrary to your employer's instructions never to do that, they can fire you for that too. We're talking with Howard Levin employment and labor relations lawyer about the return to work it's out there somewhere if you have been working remotely or working from home or even if you have been working in your workplace and some other employees have not when are they coming back when it comes to vaccination status obviously vaccines have taken on a new meaning we're talking COVID-19 vaccines so much more than we're talking vaccines for chicken pox these days but we've had vaccination status for a long long time we've had that little yellow card that everybody has stuffed in a drawer somewhere that you have to dig out and it's got a bunch of scribbles on it where and when you got each individual vaccine what do we need to know about vaccination status in the workplace well it's up to each employer but the employer has a right to require vaccinations they have a right to say if you're going to be in close proximity to other workers you have to be vaccinated a lot of employers won't do that, but a lot of them will do that. Now, they can't do that with people who are working from home and they allow to work from home. They can't do that with people who have private offices who have no contact with anybody. But if people are going to be exposed to other people, employers have the right to require them to be vaccinated. So if there's a requirement, let me try and connect two dots here. Is there a way employers can make vaccination mandatory? Yes, if you assuming there isn't a medical exemption, I mean a real medical exemption, not a BS one, but a real medical exemption, not I get a little bit of a rash, but it will imperil my health if I'm vaccinated kind of exemption. Or if there's a genuine religious exemption, I don't mean the person's free-flowing new religion they've just invented, which prohibits vaccinations, but a genuine established religion that prohibits vaccinations. There's a couple of ones, Eastern religions, but they aren't very common in Canada then that's an exception the employer has to accommodate. But short of that, they can order everybody vaccinated on pain of being discharged for cause. Okay, so there is, there's grounds for dismissal on that. 
Yes. Okay. So, in other words, you know, if we go back in time, because this isn't something maybe we've focused on, it, it might sound right now to be kind of blunt and, hey, this, this, is, this is real stuff, but this is something that goes back beyond or before COVID-19 and this pandemic, doesn't it? No, no, this is brand new. This is brand new. Yes, so, but I mean, new. if we're talking about vaccinations for, you know, whatever it happens to be, smallpox, polio, mumps, chickenpox, uh, oh, they've all been fair, there. Fair enough. But so, those, aren't real, those aren't real diseases that are existent right now. So there's no risk of spread. It's not a virulent disease that a significant percentage of the, of the population has or could have at any given time. But what, 100 years ago, could they have required or 80 years ago? Certainly. But... On the other hand, maybe the law 80 years ago, and I can't really speak to it, hadn't evolved to the point that it's evolved today with public safety statutes with multi-million dollar fines and a year in jail for imperiling workers' health and not taking prophylactic steps. You know, these are all new public policy legislation that's come into effect. So I can clearly say today it would be cause for discharge. 80 years ago, who knows? Howard, when did these come into effect? Because I feel like I missed something. They came into effect during the pandemic. There's occupational health and safety legislation, but there's been various public safety pieces of legislation announced by the Ford government and other governments across the country that have created massive fines for, I mean, $5 million fines a year in jail for breaching public safety standards. And they're interpreted in a way that's pretty rigorous when it comes to protection for COVID. Howard Levitt joining us. Employment and labor relations lawyer, as we look at what your employer in Ontario can require from you in order to return to work. So if if we're kind of putting this into a, a nice little package at the end for anyone just joining us, Howard, what, again, can employers require you to have in order to return to work once they say, we're going back? They can require you to vaccinate if you're working close with other people. They can require you to, of course, follow all safety standards. They can require you to follow their COVID protocols on pain of discharge. For example, if you're returning from another country, you better tell the employer and you better socially isolate for two weeks. If you're, if you've been in contact with someone with COVID and you don't report it and come into work, you could be fired for cause for that. These are some of the issues they require and they can require you to come back to work. That's the biggest issue right now for most employees. They're liking working from home or not working, as the case may be, and they don't want to go back to the office where they're going to be sat on by the supervisor and supervised eight hours a day, and they're saying, well, the employers have been long for the last year like this, and I've been doing a pretty good job. I don't want to go back to the office. Well, they don't have a choice. Interesting. Howard, really appreciate the update on the employment and labor laws. Please keep safe, and I know we'll talk again soon. Good talking. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's Howard Levin, employment and labor relations lawyer, just interpreting some of that legislation so that we all know where we sit. And as Howard says, yeah, it's the, well, we're we're going back to work. Some workplaces are like that now. Just got a note with regard to the fact that we're going to be in conversation with the labor minister, Monty McNaughton. That's scheduled to happen now in less than an hour at 2.45. And we're going to be talking about paid sick days. We're going to be talking about what the government is or is not doing. And got a note based on that wondering about, say, for instance, 
essential workplaces or what have been deemed essential workplaces and how closely people are required to work. They're required to work there and they're required to come into work because those remain open and how close proximity everybody is and some concerns over that, that, you know, maybe this isn't completely essential. The example that was given was a thrift store. So you're sorting, you're organizing donations and you've got a full staff and you've got people in close proximity. Is that truly an essential service? And as Howard says, if your workplace is saying, come on into work, if you don't want to work there, you can look for a different job. But if they're saying, come on into work, you got to go into work. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from one to three. 